Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. At a critical Democratic meeting this week, Senator Bernie Sanders continued to push his colleagues to go for the full $3.5 trillion reconciliation package, arguing that trimming down significantly forced much of the agenda to be cast aside or mutilated beyond recognition. Spending $700 billion to combat climate change over the next decade could legitimately move the country and the world in the right direction, making hitting some of the emissions targets within the realm of possibility. Knocking that down significantly removes that possibility. But West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin, also in the meeting, offered a counterproposal. How about zero, he said, touching his thumb to his forefinger, making the universal sign for zip, zilch, nada. Now that threat might be a bluff, because the bipartisan infrastructure bill Manchin once includes billions upon billions in subsidies for West Virginia and for the fossil fuel industry. It's hard to see him giving up on that. After the meeting, I caught up with Bernie along with a scrum of reporters, and he made the case that the test before the Senate was a test of democracy itself. The goal of the pharmaceutical industry has been to take down the entire reconciliation package as the best way to prevent the government from being able to negotiate lower drug prices. If they can do that, Sanders argued, then what is the point of elections? You know, lowering the cost of prescription drugs, very popular. Obviously, it's what the American people want. But we are at a moment when you have over 80% of the American people in poll after poll after poll, they say lower the cost, have Medicare negotiating. The VA has been doing this for I don't know how many years, but for many, many years. The VA is paying one half of what Medicare pays for prescription drugs. Makes sense to anybody in America? It doesn't. Why aren't we not succeeding? Because you have an incredibly powerful special interest who is incredibly greedy. And this is an issue not just of lowering prescription drugs, it's whether or not democracy can work. And if democracy cannot work, if we cannot take on the pharmaceutical industry, why do you go on and ask people to vote? Why do you ask them to participate in the political process? We don't have the power to take on a powerful special interest. On Thursday night, President Biden held a town hall on CNN, laying out what was in and what was out. Look, <laughs> when you're in the United States Senate, and you're a president of the United States, and you have 50 Democrats. Every one is a president. <laughs> Every single one. So you got to work things out. Democrats are now saying that a deal could be done as early as this coming week, though they said that about last week, too. For an update on the state of play, we're joined by Representative Ro Khanna, a Democrat from California. Congressman Rokana, thank you for joining me on Deconstructed. Always good to be on. And so you were at the White House earlier this week, and I was curious, what are those meetings like? I mean, the, the, the group that you went with, this number of progressives who are you know, supportive of, 
of Biden's plan? Kind of what's the end goal of a of a meeting like that? I think the end goal is to get a sense of what the progressive priorities are, to understand that there has to be compromise, and then to see where progressives are willing to compromise and what are places where we are very, very firm, and uh, just to get a sense of what things matter. So in this case, it was very clear that we climate was a big uh, part of the conversation, uh, making sure that uh, we had uh, all the programs, as many of the programs that did cut key programs was part of the conversation. And like, how many people are in the room? Like, how, how detailed does Biden get in these meetings? Is it, is it, he's very, you know, he's pretty detailed. It's, uh, that has actually surprised and impressed me. I mean, he's got charts and he will say, okay, for the child tax credit, here's the amount of billions of dollars that we could have. And here are the trade-offs and, and we'll go item by item offering his thoughts and then soliciting feedback. So I assume the, the clean electricity performance program, the CPP, you know, came up in the meeting, uh, this is the thing that that Mansion once you know excluded from the final deal. You know how how concerned are you about that? What did he, and what did Biden seem to think about how likely it was that the U.S. could hit some of its necessary emissions targets without it? I'm very concerned uh, about that being excluded. And what many made clear to to the president is that if it is excluded, there needs to be an alternative that. Uh, will hit the 50% reduction by 2030. And that alternative can't just be let's spend money on carbon capture and nuclear, as uh, some have suggested. There has to be either state block grants to, to hit those targets or some fee on industrial facilities. I mean, there are a number of options that we're exploring. But we left the meeting uh, with a clear sense that there needed to be a, a robust alternative if CEPP doesn't make it in. Is that possible within the $300 billion cap that it seems like is uh, the bill is drifting towards for climate? I don't think that there is a $300 billion cap. My understanding is that the $300 billion is in solar and investment tax credits and production tax credits. But wholly apart from that, in my view, is the need to have a program that is an alternative to CEPP if uh, CEPP is not going to be in there. So I don't think that we're looking at that cap, at least from my uh, understanding of the negotiations. Gotcha. So $300 billion is for directly for clean energy, but then there's there could be other money that goes towards utilities and other things. How, how would the block grants work? Is this sort of like a if a state wants to take it up, then they have the, the opportunity to do so? And blue states are you know, more likely to do so. And those are also some of the biggest power producing states, I suppose. Yeah. I mean, I, I, we'd have to flesh out the details with that's just at the top level. That is the idea that, you know, West Virginia or some of the other states don't have to participate, but other states that want to be uh, aggressive in uh, climate goals would then have the resources to provide incentives and uh, even, uh, even mandates and that that's funding would be based on the state's commitment to hitting those goals. So it would be a way of having a state-based approach, and you could probably have dramatic reduction in emissions, even if uh, several states don't participate. It seems like there's a gap between, you know, how much still has to be worked out and how much has to be filled in and how much optimism there is that there's going to be a deal like any minute. Like Speaker Nancy Pelosi was saying on Friday, you know, deal is close. You know, Leader Hoyer is saying, you know, they're aiming to vote 
next week on both the bipartisan infrastructure bill and the reconciliation package. You know, on Thursday night, though, you have Biden saying, yeah, we have five or six things to work out. And the five or six things are like huge things. You know, so does this all just come together over the next few days? I mean, where, where are you on the optimism spectrum? I'm, I'm hopeful, but my, my optimism is fueled by the president's engagement and the president's confidence and the speaker's confidence and the majority leader's confidence. So it seems that and pe- the fact that people are talking to each other. So the I, I'm betting on that prevailing. But I would say there are three broad areas that still have to be worked out. One is the cinema factor. I mean, the idea that you wouldn't raise corporate tax rates uh, and that uh, you wouldn't raise tax rates on the wealthy and could still pay for this is hard to imagine. I mean, the proposals of 7% minimum corporate tax, yes, I'm all for that. But is that really, are we not going to see massive lobbying against that? And can you really adopt that? Mm-hmm. Or what is actually much harder to adopt is marketing it to market. And I'm understanding because that's one of the things cinema has floated, that uh, you ought to be taxed before you realize capital gains. So what my concern is, is that her proposals are fine in the abstract, but what if they actually start to become real, then you'll see massive lobbying against that. And to do that in a week or two is hard, given it took months uh, for the Ways and Means Committee to come up with the tax proposals, and raising rates is actually the most straightforward. So that that's one big area that has to be reconciled. Climate is another area that has to be reconciled. How do you get sufficient climate provisions that also can get mansions vote. And then the final area that I think is has to be reconciled is the Medicare expansion on seniors uh, for dental, vision, and hearing. Having programs outside of Medicare, I don't think will cut it. And that needs to have significant funding so that it's uh, uh, actually effective in the first few years. So one, one idea I've heard is that the way that you deal with the cinema situation is that you isolate her by getting a deal with Manchin. And that the gamble would be that with two holdouts, she's much more willing to play this game that she's playing. But if she's the very last holdout, then this thing where she only speaks to the White House, never speaks to the public, only speaks to the press through you know through anonymous lobbyists, and then floats brand new policies at the last minute, that that game falls apart if she's the very last holdout. Do you have a better idea than that? Or is, is that how you see this potentially unfolding? It seems to me that that could be one way. I mean, I know Richie Neal, the Ways and Means Chair, met with uh, her yesterday. Yesterday, the staff briefed her. So, you know, I mean, one way would be just to persuade her uh, on the merits of raising the rates as a superior alternative to some of the things that she's proposing, and an easier alternative. Uh, but if she doesn't come around, then I, I suppose that's the only way to, to isolate her and 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 see if she really does vote no at the end of the day. But she's shown to be so unpredictable that that's a high-risk strategy. Right, although I don't know what the lower-risk ones are. Well, the, 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 the Can you think of anything that... Yeah. Lowest risk is just, just get her in the room and persuade her? Yeah, or and, and I don't know, you know, I don't know if all the carrots and sticks have been used mm-hmm. uh, that, that, that Schumer may have and that the president has if she's really the lone holdout to, to finally say, look, it's time for you to come on board or X. But if there is, if we've done everything and she's still wavering, then sure, have the vote and uh, 
and, and I do think that would be a lot of pressure on her, but uh, it's not a guaranteed outcome. Did anybody in, in the meeting with Biden bring up immigration? And what, what's yes. your sense of, you know, so, and what was his response? And, you know, what, what's, what's the sense of how expansive an immigration policy might be able to get into the package? His response is what the parliamentarian allows. So the fact that he wants immigration is is obvious. Uh, some of us believe we should overrule the parliamentarian. I don't think he will be for that because he believes that would basically uh, have Manchin or others walk as they would see that as a, uh, a backdoor of eliminating the filibuster. So he is, in my view, wants immigration, but he'll be fine or abide by whatever the parliamentarian decides. You know, I, I've heard that there is still hope that, that the, the Senate has hope that there are other immigration provisions that they can get through right. reconciliation. Is, is, that, is that your understanding or have they given up on, on immigration? My understanding is that they're still hopeful for some of the work permits, the work visas, some of the employment-based green cards, that those things may be seen as budget-related by the parliamentarian and be in reconciliation. So even if the broader immigration framework doesn't pass, that they're still hopeful some of it will. And immigration was one of the, you know, the progressive caucus, you guys put out five priorities that you, that you wanted in that. That was one. Climate was another. Lowering drug prices and using that to expand public health care was another. And then affordable housing was was one of them. How's that looking? Because that that seems to be at once kind of the biggest problem that people have, you know, month to month yep. is the a skyrocketing cost of housing, yet also seems to be the one that Democrats might be quickest to boot. Well, after say school construction or you know things around education, because education got the boot in the 2009 stimulus. Kids can't vote, so you know their priorities get booted. Do you expect? Affordable housing might might survive this time. What have you been hearing about about that? I I do. Let me just say on the children's front, the fact that universal preschool is definitely going to be in, I think, is a very good decision and and one that is speaks to the moral necessity of helping kids have a fair start and the economic returns on that. Even though that may not be the best politics. Uh, because kids can't vote, so I'm I'm pleased mm-hmm. that that's in there. On housing, and starting at age three, pre K three, yeah, pre, for every three year old basically gets to to go to uh, uh, preschool, which is what it is in France. The Ecole system there is actually uh, brilliant, and it used, in France, uh, if you by the time you go to first grade, regardless of background, most of the kids are at a reasonably similar level. Uh, because of their preschool. So right. it, it's work there. And if we could do anything similar here, that would be a, a major, major step. In terms of housing, Richie Torres was very eloquent in the meeting. I don't think he mind my sharing it. I mean, he talked about growing up in public housing, how that for him was uh, made all the difference in his life. I didn't realize that President Biden himself had been in Section 8 housing at one point in his life. So there's definitely an awareness of the struggles, the necessity of housing assistance, I anticipate it will be in there, but how robust and how much funding that that remains to be decided. And the fifth one, what you guys called strengthening the care economy, what's included under that? Because child tax credit, I think that's that was not specifically included as a progressive priority, although obviously it is a significant one. What's included under strengthening the care economy that 
that is on the chopping block and that you guys are fighting for? Well, the number of years of childcare and how much it will be covered and subsidized is a key issue. The child allowance and how, or the child tax credit and how uh, how long that'll be and how much of it will be refundable. I mean, my sense is right now the refundability part will be permanent, uh, so uh, so everyone can get the child allowance even if they're very poor. But it's questionable how many years. But the way we look at that that uh, it's the child care plus the child allowance and then elder care. I mean, the support for home care workers uh, being paid a decent wage and people being able to afford that. And for people that don't don't know what refundability means, yet, like you said, that means that even if you pay zero income taxes, you know, and you're the, you know among the poorest of the poor living in deep, deep poverty, you would still be eligible for the tax credit on a permanent basis, even if the child tax credit was only extended for a year. So you could extend it for a year, but if it remains refundable, it still has that poverty reduction effect is it, how how is that something that is a significant priority right now and do you think it's possible that that could that that refundability could be made permanent yes i do i think everyone wants to have this, who i've heard wants to have the refundability made permanent so before the american rescue plan if you were poor if you made under 15 20000 ironically you could not qualify for any assistance for your kids and now no matter how poor you are, you you could qualify for up to $2,000 if it's made refundable permanently. And then if we can get the extension made as many years, then it's up to $3,600. But at least the 2000 bucks per year will be there for every family, no matter how poor, if we make refundability permanent. And uh, I'm convinced we will. And what about the paid you know, family and medical leave provision. There, there's been some criticism of the design of that policy for going through the private sector and making it kludgy and cumbersome in a way that might make it hard for a lot of people to figure out how to even claim it. And then it could wind up being just a, a boondoggle for insurance companies that doesn't filter down to benefit people, which then gives Democrats the, the worst of all political worlds. It w- Was that discussed at the meeting? Is it is, is is that something that's putting it closer to elimination? Where Where is that provision now? Biden said on Thursday night it's down to four weeks from 12. So that's still open to negotiation. I mean, I think a lot of people who have had kids uh, have voiced the understandable point that four weeks is absolutely absurd for someone who's experiencing pregnancy and given birth and then has to have some time off to, to look after their, their newborn. So Many progressives believe that it's better to set the longer precedent and do it for less years than to have a short precedent for more years. Uh, but that's an ongoing negotiation. So like, as a member, not just a member of Congress, but you know, your senior official within the Congressional Progressive Caucus, which is weighing in on this you know, pretty heavily, how, how, do you, how do you receive information about this? Like, what, how, do you, how do you learn what Kirsten Sinema and Joe Manchin want out of this? How do you learn what the White House wants? Are you reading the same just news reports and tip sheets that everybody else is? or Some of it was directly from the president, although there's not much in confidence because anyone who watched the town hall last night probably got all of the information that he <laughs> would have shared with, uh, with us. But some of it is from reading the different reporters and their tweets. And some of it is from our, our leadership. But we... we 
we don't have as much visibility into what mansion and cinema want. And so what we are, what we usually engage in is here's what we want. And then when there's pushback to one of our ideas, then we say, okay, here's where we could have some compromise, but here's where it's uh, going way too far and we can't compromise. And so if the White House and the party leaders say, we have reached a, a deal, we have a framework with Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin, and we're working out the details, but we have a basic agreement. So therefore, we're going to put the bipartisan infrastructure bill on the floor while we continue to work on this. How would you and your colleagues respond to that? Is Would that be enough of a good faith gesture to move forward on that? Or when you think about Joe Manchin this week saying, I'm comfortable with zero, does that make progressives say, no, no, it has to be actually, we want to see the text? Ron, you put your finger on actually the internal discussions and debates within the progressive caucus is what, what is good enough. Uh, is it good enough if we have the president's word that Manchin and Cinema will vote for uh, the reconciliation at this number with these provisions? Uh, and, and some people say, no, we need them to be, the Manchin and Cinema to be public. Others say we need the ironclad agreement. Others say, no, the president wouldn't make that representation unless he really could follow through and no one's going to go and lie straight up to the president of the United States and put him in that position. My sense is that we will be able to work that out to a reasonable level of confidence. I don't think it's the proceduralism that will get in the way. The question is, can you get a deal in the first place uh, where Manchin and Cinema are committed uh, to a top line number, to numbers that uh, make up each bucket and that have robust climate provisions? Uh, it seems to me that uh, getting that agreement is much harder than figuring out the procedure of mm-hmm. how to move forward. I want to also ask you a couple questions about the National Defense Authorization Act, which you're you know actively involved in negotiating. It's uh, moved through the House, at, but it has not gone through conference committee yet, has not become law. So there's still some negotiations going on around it. You've been fighting for provisions within it that would restrict what the U.S. and Saudi Arabia are able to do in Yemen. What is the status of that? And do you believe that your amendment is going to prevail? Yes. And it's an amendment that Jake Sullivan and Tony Blinken supported when they weren't in the administration last year. Trump stripped it. The amendment is very simple. It says if Saudi continues the bombing of uh, Yemen, then we will stop supplying them with parts, including uh, tires. So it will literally ground the Saudi offensive air force to a halt. It would force them to lift the blockade. It would force them to recognize that they've lost the war. And then you would be able to have internal negotiations for what the future of Yemen looks like. The Houthis aren't innocent actors. They've committed many human rights violations. But to suggest that the Saudi bombing continuing there is in any way conducive to peace is just not understanding the reality on the ground. So we passed by amendment. There is a, a Meeks amendment. Meeks is well-intentioned on this, but I think he probably had to work with the administration to have an amendment that has uh, more ability for waivers for the administration. He himself is supporting our amendment and hopes our amendment emerges in the conference. And so we're working very, very hard to have our amendment emerge in the conference to get the administration support behind it. If it does, it literally would pressure the Saudis to end the war. So so Meeks, who pushed the alternative amendment, um, is supporting yours. Who, who are the main obstacles at this point then? 
to getting that into the final package? The Senate. I mean, the Senate, both the Republican ranking member and the Senate chair has to be on board on the armed services. And then the administration has to publicly come out for our amendment. Those are the two places that uh, we need uh, support for it to, to, to be part of it. Adam Smith, who's the House chair, is supportive of our amendment and would be fine with that language making it in uh, in the final bill. Have they given any reason why they haven't come out yet, either Reed in the Sen- Jack Reed in the Senate or, or the White House? They're still trying, I think, in the White House's case to engage in, in, in negotiations. I know they've been taking different trips to Saudi Arabia, so my guess is they're hoping to see if they can resolve it before then. I don't know on the on the Senate side. Now, you, you also have the Senate Republicans and how much of an issue this is for them. So they may say that they don't think that the Republicans would sign off on, the, on this amendment with the NDAA. Ultimately, in my view, this comes down to the uh, administration supporting the amendment. If the administration is strongly for it, I believe the amendment would pass. And meanwhile, it's not getting any significant press coverage, but the U.S. is in the, in the middle of planning to spend billions upon billions upon billions of dollars uh, modernizing its nuclear war capabilities, building an entire new fleet of ICBM, nuclear ICBMs, and, and otherwise just investing in extraordinary amounts that began under Obama, pushed through, you know, continued under Trump, and now it's still ongoing. Um, it, what on earth are we thinking doing this? And is it is it too late to to slow this down or stop it? I have been vocal on this for the past two years, as has John Garamendi. The idea that we should be modernizing the ICBMs makes no sense. I mean, first of all, the ICBMs aren't strategically as valuable as having nuclear capability on a submarine or, or an air force because an ICBM is a sitting target. Second, uh, the Bill Perry and those who have studied this, like Sam Dunn, have said that ICBMs are the biggest risk for accidental war because you can't call back when you hit launch an ICBM. If you deploy an airplane or a submarine, you can still reverse course before the missile goes off. So for those reasons, we ought to be very skeptical about putting more money into new ICBMs. And the Minutemen currently are, are working, and there's clear uh, view that you could actually uh, maintain and improve them. There's no need to upgrade them to this new new missile system. So uh, we have tried through the Armed Services Committee, with the support of Adam Smith, to say, let's stop some of this funding. Let's slow it down at the very least. Let's study the issue. What is the rush? Uh, we haven't succeeded yet, uh, but we are going to continue to try to stop this massive investment of a trillion dollars over the next 20, 30 years on nuclear modernization. And also, who are we going to nuke? Yeah, I mean, they would, they, cl- they, they claim it's deterrent, but the, the ICBM Minutemen right. are perfectly yes, I think we have enough deterrence if, if nuclear weapons are deterrents. You know, it's not like they, they don't work or they're not functional or they're not, they're, they're, you know, and if they, you could say, okay, if there was some technical error or they couldn't be launched or something, then you could make the make some argument, but they're, they're perfectly functional. Yes. I think the nuclear bombs that we dropped on Japan toward the end of World War II, are, those are deterrent enough. Like it's, it's not as if countries would look at that, look at Nagasaki and say, well, if they haven't improved their technology since then, sure, we'll be able to withstand this. I mean, it's, it's bringing Armageddon down from the sky. 
bringing it down in a slightly fancier way doesn't seem to have any. Right. And, and that's the, the thing that the burden should be on the people who want the new nuclear weapons to say, why is it that they're needed? What's wrong with the minimum? Why can't we continue to maintain them? And even if you need to have some spending on enhancing them, to, to build new ICBMs makes no sense from a resource perspective, makes no sense from the perspective of triggering accidental nuclear war. And just as an unnecessary expense. Right. And hey, if you need to pay for for this reconciliation package, there's a trillion dollars. Yeah. I mean, that's over 30 years, but you could at least get 100 billion and everyone adds up. I mean, 100 billion is significant in terms of you could probably get every every person the dental or hearing benefits of this country every senior. Well, Congressman Khanna, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. I, I just want to end by saying that, uh, you know, I, I, I think the progressive movement should be very pleased at the very least on how we've broken through with policies like paid family leave, childcare, universal preschool, benefits for seniors now being mainstream and something that we recognize our democracy needs as opposed to uh, being an outlier of all major democracies. Now, I recognize that there may be a disappointment in the compromises we have to make and differences of opinion even on how far to compromise. But regardless of where you are on that uh, scale, people should know that the only reason that these policies are finally being considered as mainstream and popular is because progressives have been fighting for them for the last 20 years, and Bernie Sanders and Warren and others fought for them uh, in the presidential election. So the mobilization is making a difference. And it, it is interesting to think about the way that the terrain has changed. Like The conversation is being held on kind of progressive turf. And I was just looking back at what House Democrats ran on in, in 2006, and they came up with this agenda, kind of the epitome of Rahm Emanuel, the six for 06. And the six things, I don't, there was actually uh, negotiate, allowing Medicare to negotiate drug prices. So they've been fighting for that for 15 plus years now. Uh, and then it was allowing students to write off a portion of the interest <laughs> they paid on their student debt. Right. Like that was one of that was one of the six. Like that like that was the level of ambition that Democrats had that qualified as a thing that they would champion and say, you if you elect us, this is what we're going to do for you. Some of your interests on your student debt will be tax deductible. So we're in a completely different place today. You're right. We're in a different place. And even even the, the, the mainstream, I mean, obviously we have wonderful alternative media and independent media with this podcast with The Intercept. But finally, even mainstream media, now you look at people who are being asked and in the center of conversation, it's a lot, lot more progressives than even when I came to Congress uh, five years ago. So the, the progressive movement now is becoming the mainstream of, of the party. That doesn't mean that we can let up in any way on the energy. We are still now faced with this intense lobbying, and we see that they can just get one or two senators or one or two members of Congress to kill things, even if you have mainstream consensus. So we've gone from saying not no longer being a fringe or an outlier. Now we're the mainstream, but we're seeing that even the mainstream can be defeated with special interests. So it's going to continue to take mobilization and lobbying. My only point is, don't be, don't have a defeatist view of uh, what what's uh, the point of all this. Uh, there has been tremendous progress. Right, Medicare still can't negotiate drug prices, but it's much closer. 
than it was 15 years ago. Much closer. And some of this, this is why if we could get this bill through, you know, the precedent of saying, okay, we're a country that believes in paid family leave, in child care, in universal preschool, in dental vision, in hearing procedures, that's, that's a pretty significant shift from the view that the era of big government is over. We'll see. A couple big weeks ahead. We will see. We will see. Well, thank you again for joining me. Thank you, Ryan. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. That was Ro Khanna. Joining us next is Daniel Bogoslaw, who has a new story in The Intercept about the career of the man at the center of the negotiations, Joe Manchin. Daniel, welcome to Deconstructed. Hi, thanks for having me. Sure. So you have a new story, uh, a feature on Joe Manchin out in The Intercept today. I didn't, I didn't realize that uh, a young Joe Manchin had, had met uh, JFK back in 1960 <laughs> as, as Kennedy was uh, you know, working West Virginia in order to, to win that state to prove that you know, he could win over Protestant voters. Um, you tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, uh, I think that's that's uh, one piece that's certainly been left out of uh, uh, anecdotes in, in national coverage these past few months. Um, uh, you know, Manchin's family really served as as sort of the conduit for for Kennedy's landslide win there, which propelled him onwards to to seize the presidency. Um, he tells this anecdote in in a press release uh, around, I believe, the anniversary of of Ken- Kennedy's death, um, where basically the Kennedy clan came down to his family home in Farmington. He says he was working on his go kart at the time, and he got called upstairs to basically shake hands with the Kennedy family before they set off. You know, across the state trying to, to whip votes. And it's a really interesting parable to think about one of his first introductions to national politics. And, you know, the people who would, who would shape his political career, the, one of the, the targets, um, that his father had was, you know, to try to emulate this, this sort of political dynasty. And as I talk about in the piece, there are parts of that that were certainly emulated and other parts that were not. Yeah. And you, you, you say that uh, A. James Manchin, who was Manchin's father's brother. So Manchin's father was a mayor, local mayor. His his uncle was a local state representative and became the kind of the go-to Kennedy man for in 1960. So what? T- yeah, tell us about A. James and and Manchin's father. Yeah. So A. James was was sort of like the the point man. Um, 
on the on the tour, he was actually sort of started off the whole dynasty. He was elected to the House of Delegates uh, when he was only 21. And he had been friends with Arch uh, Moore Jr., who was, he was born into a political family. Uh, he had become the governor of West Virginia. And if that name sounds familiar, it's because he uh, was the, the father of Shelley Moore Capito, who's uh, the other senator from West Virginia. And so that was sort of one of their first connections. Um, and there was sort of one of their first inroads um, into politics. Right, and, they, and they talk in West Virginia about the Moors and the mansions. Exactly. The Moors and the mansions. The, the, those are the two kind of overlapping you know, families that kind of control politics and one, one Republican, one Democrat, but that's not really the point in West Virginia. Right, right. They were kind of linked from, from the beginning. Moore was later convicted on all these felonies, uh, tax fraud, extortion, um, but that didn't really... Clearly, that didn't take a hit on his family, you know, considering the success his, his daughter had. Right. So then uh, Manchin himself, you know, goes into politics pretty young, uh, state senator. After being elected to the state Senate, you know, he quickly uh, sets up uh, his own coal company, Enter Systems. You have some, some reporting on an, an interesting little saga of Enter Systems from the late 80s and 90s that begins your tale of federal investigators, you know, circling people around mansion, you know, for a 30 year stretch. What, what happened in the late eighties, nineties? Sure. So just to give a brief context, Enter Systems was basically started as a brokerage brokerage firm where mansion was just a middleman and that built up a lot of con contacts, but he wasn't sort of directly involved in the moving and production and sale of coal. And, and that sort of changed right around 89, 90. Um, and, you know, basically, I obtained documents showing that um, in 1992, there was a federal investigation uh, into a mine called Peabody Coal Number no. 2, um, where essentially they were looking into trucks disappearing from the logs. So basically, people involved in this mine deleting trucks and trying to make those charges to the mine operators disappear so that they could turn around and sell that coal for a profit. Now, when this investigation sort of blew up and, and people started actually getting charged. Um, there was no mention in, in any of the reporting or any of, in, any of these public documents about Manchin's company, Enter Systems. What this affidavit that I obtained uh, shows was that actually Enter Systems was being looked, looked into by an uh, IRS special agent. And so this is a few years before Manchin then runs for governor in, in 1996. You know, how did this case resolve? So ultimately, a number of people in this case were charged. Um, the security guard at the mine who helped collaborate, the mine supervisor, and two of the people who were purchasing that coal were also charged. When we reached out to one of the loaders who was, who was also charged, a, a, a worker who aided in this crime, and asked him, you know, how was it that this other company that was named in this affidavit uh, wasn't charged, he said, because they had connections and I didn't. And then he dropped off and didn't want to answer more questions. And were they ultimately convicted, most of these? They were. They were. Okay. So then, so Manchin lost the, lost the Democratic primary in 1996. The Charlotte Pritt, who won the primary, kind of a populist FDR Democrat, uh, she blames Manchin to this day uh, for for losing in the general election, for for flipping and and supporting the the Republican in the general election, and and people cite the ninety six 
you know, Republican victory in the governor's race. Uh, even amid Bill Clinton's landslide win in the state, Jay Rockefeller won a Senate race in a landslide as a Democrat. Even amid that, the Republican ends up winning and the, the party, you know, the state begins shifting, you know, toward Republicans. So four years later, Joe Manchin wins the secretary of state race. Uh, in 2004, he runs and wins the governor's mansion, which he had sought eight years earlier. So then you, you write about another investigation while he was uh, governor. Can you talk a little bit about that one? Sure. So if you fast forward from 2004 to 2010, he's putting his time as governor and now he's setting his eyes and he's building uh, to something bigger. So it's in 2010 that uh, Robert Byrd dies in office. Uh, This is the longest serving U.S. senator. He still holds that record. Similarly powerful West Virginia politician who's built up all of these connections, and he he leaves this gaping void, which Manchin is obviously extremely well positioned to fill and is his intention to fill. But because of the timing of his death, Manchin has to appoint an interim senator before the special election can take place, and so he appoints this sort of low-level figure named Booth, who who used to work for him as. Um, legal counsel as he awaits the special election, which he'll go on to run in and win. Right in this time period between that special election and Byrd's death, all of a sudden this this wide-sweeping federal probe starts to descend. This probe is initially focused on basically a, a contractor and his illegal manipulation of the bid system to win bids to basically redecorate Manchin's office, Manchin's chief of staff's office, as well as um, other rooms in the governor's mansion. But it quickly expands uh, to ensnare the highway department, the aviation department that operates the state's aircraft, and really starts to expand outwards, touching all these different agencies within Manchin's administration. And so what ends up happening with that investigation? So ultimately, you know, the name of this contractor is released, but his sentencing gets pushed off until after that special election. And basically, he's the only one charged. He's charged with fabricating these false bids and nothing else really comes of it. And so what prosecutors at the time said that his history of fraudulent behavior and and the fact that he only provided what moderately what they say he only provided what what he provided was of little limited, use or limited yeah. limited use was a reason that he ended up getting sentenced despite the fact that he'd done something like a hundred wiretaps as part of this investigation that you you write that the judge was quite confused like wait a minute why are we sentencing this guy when he cooperated with this massive probe that West Virginia has been talking about you know for weeks or months now and yet he's the only one who's going down for it. Right. He recorded over a hundred conversations. He leveled accusations of public corruption against at least two different state workers and had been cooperating for years. And so the idea that, you know, there would be this massive investment into resources into this probe, which was also obviously extremely broad and, and for nothing to come of it was very confusing. But to really dig down and understand that is difficult because those records are sealed. And so we we really only have bits and pieces. And Clark Deal, the, the uh, informant in question, you know, didn't respond to our request for comment. And what did his own attorney say about why he thought he got 
uh, the treatment that he got? So his lawyer's line was attorneys general, uh, the attorneys general changed, the United States attorneys changed, governors and senators changed, and the United States prosecution of Alaska Senator Ted Stevens imploded. And, you know, that last part is, is funny, too, because that investigation, you know, also centered around, you know, illegal payments for renovations. Um, but essentially, mm-hmm. you know, the point is that all these things got shuffled up. There was no longer consistency. There was no longer a priority. So it just kind of went away. Right. And that's the that's the claim of his attorney. That, and we, can, we can't uh, verify that, but that is what the, that is what the attorney claimed at the time. Uh, you also talk about this interesting 2018 investigation that linked back to the Peabody uh, coal mine. Can you talk a little bit about that one? Sure. So one of the places that this stolen coal was being shipped to were these docks that are, you know, throughout West Virginia and, and host barges to help move coal throughout the state. Um, and those docks were owned by someone named James Lorita. Now, at the time, charges weren't brought against him, um, but it was notable that his docks were named in this uh, affidavit that we obtained. If you fast forward from 92 all the way to 2018, uh, this same character gets indicted on campaign finance charges, basically instructing members of his corporation to donate bonuses that they received to a number of West Virginia politicians, including Manchin. The reason that continuity is is interesting is because another company that Luria is a officer at operates the mine that was the number one supplier to Manchin's Enter Systems. So it, it again kind of broadens this strange web and these characters that keep coming back over and over again um, and who seem to be unable to disentangle themselves from, from constant investigation. Right. And he also was, in the end, not convicted, right? That's correct, yeah. And yeah, right, so in 2018, that case ended in a mistrial and the U.S. attorney at the time told me that it wasn't a, a prudent and efficient use of government resources to seek a retrial. And then the other thing you uncover is this this instance during the time that Manchin was governor of a, a rate increase being uh, granted to a, a power plant, a, a utility that was you know buying, that was getting its electricity from this particular power plant. The state approved a rate increase from what something like $27 a megawatt to something like $33, $34 a megawatt. So, you know, really take, you know, really whacking people's electric bills. What you've uncovered is that Manchin's chief of staff was involved in the lobbying um, for that rate increase. And also that the uh, coal, the, the plant that benefited from the rate increase was the main buyer of coal from Manchin himself. So can you talk a little bit about how this this rate increase came about and what Manchin's alleged role in it is? Sure. So basically, this this rate increase was critical for maintaining the financial viability uh, of the Grant Town power plant, which was the largest purchaser of Enersystems coal. And basically, what I learned was that Manchin instructed his chief of staff, Larry Puccio, to meet with Monpower lobbyists to to you know aid in getting the Public Service Commission to approve this rate increase and maintain the viability uh, of this plant. So, which then drives up the price of electricity for consumers, but makes the plant much more viable. Yes. Uh, So, you did get a response from uh, Senator Manchin. I want to I want to read that here. 
Uh, his office, his spokesperson said, Senator Manchin has devoted most of his adult life to public service. At every stage, he has been compliant with financial and ethical standards. He has never been the subject of a federal investigation. So, Daniel, uh, terrific reporting. Uh, thank you for joining me on Deconstructed. Yeah, thanks for having me. That was Daniel Bogoslaw, and that's our show. Deconstructed is a production of First Look Media and The Intercept. Our producer is Zach Young. Laura Flynn is our supervising producer. Our theme music was composed by Bart Warshaw. Betsy Reed is The Intercept's editor-in-chief. And I'm Ryan Grimm, D.C. Bureau Chief of The Intercept. If you'd like to support our work, go to theintercept.com slash give. Your donation, no matter what the amount, makes a real difference. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the show so you can hear it every week. And please do leave us a rating or review. It helps people find the show. If you want to give us feedback, email us at podcasts at theintercept.com. Thanks so much. See you next week. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com.